You know, we live in the era of mega churches, right? I mean, when I was growing up, a large church was probably 500 members. And today it seems as though a 2,000 member church is not a mega church. A 5,000 is getting there. Uh, 10,000, 15,000 people attending certain churches. I was reading recently about Saddleback Church founded by Rick Warren, which has 14 campuses in Southern California and four overseas. Attendance every week of over 30,000 people, and I don't know if that's just the regular Saddleback in Fountain Valley or not. I believe I read Rick Warren was claiming 55,000 members of Saddleback Church. Although I couldn't find that article, so don't. But the other 30,000 attendants I found citations for. Many other churches have attendances, like I said, in the 10 to 20,000 person range. It is almost a competition among mega pastors um, that attendance equals quality ministry. The higher the attendance, the better the ministry. Even Charles Spurgeon somewhat fell a victim to that. You know, he built the... uh, Charles Spurgeon started at 18. By 19, he was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Had to build a new sanctuary for 5,000 people, and we're talking in the 1850s. His sermons were transposed and sent to the United States and sold for 10 cents a sermon. And with that, he funded seminaries and orphanages. I'm not denigrating him, but because he really labored for the kingdom of God. But at one point, a pastor of a more modest church came to him and mentioning the size of the Metropolitan Tabernacle said, you know, something to the effect of, why is your congregation so large and mine is so small? And Charles Spurgeon said, perhaps the Lord doesn't trust you with more souls. Okay, well, and Charles Spurgeon might be right in that respect. But it just seems as though today it's almost a competition. As someone who has lived in these small mountain towns all the time I've been a Christian, um, small churches are all the only thing I've ever known. From this size to 50, maybe 75 people. Because of that, I've been intrigued with the small church versus large church dynamic. And looking into it a number of years ago, I found that a number of studies have been done on the subject, measured by the metrics of baptisms per 100 attendees, or giving, or outreach, missionary development, uh, people uh, going into the missionary field from churches, and intangibles such as involvement, Uh, small group attendance, which became big in the 70s, and such, the most successful churches, according to those parameters, uh, are those with attendance slash members of 50 to 100 people on a weekly attendance. They are the most effective. Now, a corollary to that, and we discussed this uh, 
in scarb with pastors and things like that. Many pastors do not like being the sole elder, even in sole elder churches. But the discussions and the studies I've seen is that a pastor can really only adequately care for about 50 people. Okay? That's, that's it. I suspect that if you look at Trinity Reformed in La Mirada, I know that they have about eight elders on staff, and they're all pastors, because in Reformed Baptist, your elder is a pastor. They might not be the paid pastor or the preaching pastor, but they're all pastors. I'll bet if you look at La Mirada, they have just about a 50 to 1 pastor to attendance ratio. Steve Markadon's church, I bet you will find about the same, and they're always looking for more elders so that they can be more adequate in their ministry. Jihad is just now, uh, some of you don't know Jihad Al-Karaki, which is my favorite Reformed Baptist pastor name of all time. Jihad's church, he's having to bring on a uh, pastoral intern that he hopes turns into an elder position soon because his church has grown so much that he cannot handle the growth. So my question, my, and this is an honest question, for Saddleback Church is this, and I do not know the answer to it, so don't necessarily take this as an aspersion, but do they have 1,100 pastors on staff for a 55,000 member church? Okay? Are there 1,100 pastors so that they are adequately guiding their congregation? A backup question is, if they have 1,100 pastors, do all of the pastors know each other? Do, do pastors know all the other pastors? Come on, an 1,100-member pastorate. So it's just a question I'm throwing out. If they don't have 1,100 pastors, how does pastoral care get done? How many people slip through the cracks? How many people slip through the cracks not even because of the pastors, but because they want to slip through the cracks. I attended uh, a large mega church in Riverside one time. We had to sit in the overflow seating outside in chairs, and people would come and get, uh, after the announcements and after the songs were done, uh, get a cappuccino and come and sit down for the sermon and get up and leave before the sermon, uh, as the sermon ended. Okay, is that church? How are they getting pastoral care? Who's watching out for them? A 50-member church is the most effective because the pastor of that church is able to know each and every member. My daughter's church, which has now passed beyond that 50-member threshold, has brought, and Pastor Sheffield has been looking for another elder for a long time and just brought a new one on. So they're good up to 100 members, 120, and they're closing in on that threshold. In a 50-member church, the pastor can look out during the service and see who is there and who isn't. Is a widow missing? Elderly couple, do they need help? Is a businessman traveling? We have that happen in our church, and we know when they're gone and who we need to pray for. The pastor can find out, is a family with children missing? Is there illness? Some sort of emergency? He knows his congregation when 
It is that 50 to 1 relationship. But in a church of 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 25,000, how do you even start? How do you know who is there outside of your first five pews as you're sitting there? Maybe it can be done. And as I say, maybe it can be done because Charles Spurgeon had it set up. Uh, He issued communion cards. Okay? And as you came for... uh, He had monthly communion. Twelve spaces. If you missed three in a row and came for a fourth, a elder would visit you. But think about that. That's a three-month break. But he was being as responsible as he could to make sure that the people under his care were getting visited, and if there were problems, he could find out about it. But it might be a three-month lag time for him. I guess my point here is that churches are meant to be personal, not a baptism factory. Uh, When my son-in-law was working at Brooks Brothers, some pastors attending a conference at a local megachurch came in, and he listened in to their conversation as they searched at Brooks Brothers. Okay, and Reformed Baptist pastors seem to like Brooks Brothers. I happen to know that, so. But that's just neither here nor there. But he was listening to their conversation, and their conversation centered around X amount of attendees equals Y amount of giving. It was a formula that would work. Okay? And all of a sudden, we're talking business and not ministry. X amount of giving... X amount of people equals Y amount of giving. And it is actually something that can be proven. And that's what they were discussing. And that's what ministry seemed to mean to them. I don't know who they were. If I'm casting aspersions, I'm sorry. With that in mind, let's return to Acts 14. When we last saw the Apostle Paul in Lystra... He had just been stoned, dragged outside the city gates, and left for dead. Then the apostles, disciples, gathered around him. And Paul rose up, Luke says. You can see him in your mind's eye, straightening out his clothing, as I said last week, shaking off the dust. And with that, he re-entered the city. So we pick up today in Acts 14. I'm going to start with the last verse we covered last week. Uh, And we're doing... Verses 20b through 28. So, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to... I I just asked my son about this. Darba. It's Greek. Darba. It's not Derby. It's not Derb. It's Darba. The E is pronounced, but not as an E. So... That's probably the last time I'll say it correctly, if, in fact, I even said it correctly this time. Okay, Uh, he went on with Barnabas to Darba. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and save and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord 
in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Sidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered, the church came together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Verse 20b here says that rather a matter-of-factly that after Paul revived from his stoning and entered the city of Lystra, the next day he and Barnabas left for Darba, some 43 miles southeast of Lystra. Uh, that would be a two- to three-day walk. Uh, John MacArthur, you know, uh, comments that he must have been in total agony on that march. And yet, I think, just as the Lord protected him from certain death in this stoning, that the Lord miraculously healed him. And he was able to, well, I don't think he was, I have no proof of that, just as John MacArthur doesn't have proof of that. I suspect that he was healed completely as he raised up and walked back into the city. He walked back in as an uninjured man. As I say, Scripture says nothing about that journey. I would believe that the power and protection of God that persevered Paul, as I said, through the ordeal of stoning, also supernaturally healed him completely. Now, Darb was in a strategic location for the empire. It was a frontier town and outpost. It was as far out as the Roman Empire had gone in that area. And because of this, the imperial name of the Emperor Claudius was appended to it. So it was actually Claudio Darb, just to let you know. Everything Luke has to say about the missionary efforts in Darb are found in verse 21a. Okay? Everything he has to say about this missionary outfit. Now, we've seen, you know, a, a long time in Antioch and a lot of things written, and a long time in Iconium, and a lot in Lystra. And everything in Darab says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. So that is it. That's the, that is the outreach. That's all Luke has to say about the ministry in Darb. What is it they say uh, in the newspaper biz, uh, excitement sells? Well, Darb was probably a larger town than Lystra or Lystra. And yet because of misidentification of Paul and Barnabas as the pagan god Zeus and Hermes, as we've seen before, and, and the narrowly averted uh, sacrifice of a bull to them by the priest of the temple of Zeus, and also because of the stoning of Paul and his miraculous survival, the dusty town, the dusty little town of Lystra, got all the column inches, and the successful ministry outreach in Darb got barely a mention by Luke. But Darb was very noteworthy in the ministry of Paul. It is the first and one of the only times his ministry did not meet with persecution. We have nothing recorded here about opposition. They recorded many 
disciples. Once again, we don't know how long Paul and Barnabas ministered in Darb, but we know it was long enough to make those many disciples and establish a church. And despite having been chased out of Lystra, Iconium, and city in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas had left communities of believers in each one of those towns. And in verse 21 through 22a, it says, they preached in that the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Despite the persecution they had faced, they retraced their steps and visited each of these Galatian cities again, building up the new believers. And we are not certain There was a northern Galatia and a southern Galatia. We are in southern Galatia, and the letter to the Galatians does not specify which region it was for. But many people suspect it was written to these towns, these first Galatian towns that Paul went to, of city and Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Darb. I almost got a Derb in there, so, and Darb. Despite the persecution they had faced, they retraced their steps and visited each of these towns again. And the churches took hold. In the next ten years, Paul would visit these four churches again on both his second and his third missionary journeys. So he came back to see how they were doing. And their message to these Galatians was designed to build up the churches and the individual Christians for the trying times that Paul knew would come and which he and Barnabas had already encountered nearly everywhere they had ministered. They had faced the trials that he is warning them about and encouraging them about. They encouraged these churches to remain true to the end, which our 1689 Confession calls the perseverance of the saints. That is what true saving faith has, that you don't leave it in times of trial, that you stay with it till the very end. Verse 22b says, that Paul tells them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Now, I'm not sure we must go through many hardships. We have a translation going on here but that we will. We will go through hardships before we enter the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus said that Paul would find out how much he would suffer for Jesus' name's sake after he had been the persecutor of the church and now had been saved, Jesus says he, he will find out how much he must suffer. So do we all each to a greater or lesser degree suffer for Jesus' name's sake. It might be easy suffering, which the United States church has gone through. It might be hard suffering, which the church in China is going through. But each will suffer for Jesus' name's sake. Now note what they did next among these new churches, because this has always intrigued me. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church 
and prayer, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. All of these men that Paul and Barnabas appointed as elders were necessarily new believers. Believers of less than one year. This was, after all, the first missionary outreach to Galatia. And until um, just this effort, there were no Christians in the area. In Timothy 5.22, Paul advises the new pastor, Timothy, to do not be too quick, hasty in the laying on of hands. And others re- report this as in appointing elders, because that's what it meant, the laying on of hands to, to call others into the elderhood. He says, do not be too hasty in the laying on of hands in appointing an elder. So which is it? Paul and Barnabas are appointing elders throughout these churches and these towns that are brand new believers. Well, many believe, and I think there's no reason not to believe this, that early church elders were specially gifted by the Holy Spirit as elders. Uh, if, If there were no elders when Paul and Barnabas leave the area, the church would fall into disarray. There would be no church. Uh, There would be no gathering together of the saints unless there were elders and pastors appointed to handle these churches. It would just fall into a disarray in the absence of leadership. The Holy Spirit, I believe, supernaturally gifted these men who were both new Christians and new elders. And was this successful? Well, I pointed out earlier that... Paul made two more trips in the next 10 years, and the churches were still there. And just because I enjoy doing these kinds of things, I looked up to see whatever happened to those churches. We have accounts. City of Antioch does not exist as a city anymore, okay? It's gone. And the church in Iconium has been there to this very day. Christians still maintain a presence. It is administered by Greek Orthodox in that area now. Um, Durban still has churches up until at least the 1700s. And when I say this, it's just I I couldn't find anything further past than the 1700 AD. uh, And the same for uh, Lystra in the 900s AD. They may very well be there, but the sources I was looking at just didn't... And the names of the towns are different, so it makes it hard to trace these things down. But there were churches in these areas for up to the next 2,000 years. The planting that was done took hold and was successful. So these bishops and churches not only persevered, but flourished for millennia. Verse 24 through 25 says, After going through Sidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. Sounds almost like a poem there. Uh, It's very easy to write poetry in Latin as everything ends with the same uh, suffix. So uh, when Paul and Barnabas first came to Asia Minor, to Galatia, you may remember that though it was the major city in the area, a seaport, they bypassed Perga and went straight to the city in Antioch. And, 
and there was some suggestion that Paul was suffering from malaria from his time on the island of Cyprus. We don't know that for certain. But they did not stop and preach in Perga. But on this return through the area, they do manage to evangelize in the area, uh, though Luke reports no more than that uh, they did preach there. So Luke sums up this first missionary journey in verses 26 through 28, saying, From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Uh, Once again, I like... um, I like how much detail Luke gives us. They stayed there a long time. We have no idea how long they were there. But the, uh, I think the second missionary trip started the next year. So, months, six months, we don't know. But returning to Syrian Antioch, the church is necessarily eager to hear about the outreach of Paul and Barnabas on their year-long mission to Galatia. They had preached across the island of Cyprus. They had preached in Perga, the major city in Asia Minor. They preached in city in Antioch, the major Roman-controlled city. They preached in Iconium, the major Greek-controlled city. They left behind Christian churches in these areas. One could imagine that in the large cities, such as in Jerusalem, that the church consists of the whole of the believers meeting in smaller home churches administered by the elders that Paul had appointed. This arrangement, of course, uh, which probably existed in Iconium, Perga, and city in Antioch as well, of home churches under the elders that were appointed. This system of a church administration is still found today in the Roman Catholic Church, in Episcopalianism. It is found in the Orthodox denominations, Greek and Russian. It is still how they administer their churches, as well as more modern Lutheran and Presbyterian hierarchies. And all throughout Christian history, more focus has been placed on these large city churches, these early, shall we say, megachurches than on the smaller outlying churches. Churches like this one. Churches like other places on this mountain. All through history, people have have gravitated to looking to the majesty of the cathedrals, to to um, to the sounds of the pipe organ in the in the spacious halls. I mean, that's what people consider ministry and yet is this true it is where professional church men saw the majority of God's kingdom work taking place this is what they saw as being God's handiwork are in the cathedrals and in the large cities this is the reason that the Catholic Church seized on determining that the Bishop of Rome, the leading 
prelate of the largest city in the world, most influential city. That's why they seized on saying that he was the head of the church and the father, the leader of Christianity, the father, the papa, which simply is the word pope. It's why they seized on this, because they have an idea that where the bigger cities are is where God is doing the most work. But I would direct your focus away from the powerful, wealthy churches in the leading cities and look at the dusty hick towns Paul and Barnabas visited. Lystra, an area known for its illiteracy, its simple population of farmers, retired Roman soldiers, and its countryside filled with robbers living in caves. This is Lystra, a populace given to pagan myths, a town so small it could probably support no more than a single church, probably just meeting in a single home. What could this backwater possibly contribute to the advancement of God's kingdom? Really? There's nobody there. They're illiterate. They're uneducated. They're robbers and thieves and soldiers. A few years later, Paul returns to Lystra on his second missionary journey. And we read this in Acts 16, 1 through 2. Okay? Paul came also to Darb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. What could possibly come out of the the sticks of Lystra? That tiny town of pagans and, and robbers and few Christians in a small church? Well, Timothy did. Paul's self-described son in the faith, his trusted companion for the rest of his life. Yes, just Timothy. But Timothy came out of Lystra, to whom two major New Testament books of instructions to a young pastor are addressed. And what about Darb? Okay, so insignificant that Luke gives it only 14 words. Okay? That, I counted them. <laughs> 14, what well, depends on your translation. 14 words. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many, made many disciples. Okay? And one of the commentators I read said he was so in a hurry to get back to to Antioch and Iconium, you know, that, that man, we're done with Darba here. What came of that outreach? Well, on Paul's third missionary journey, we find this in Acts 20, 1 through 4. And it says, Paul in Macedonia and Greece, at the heading of my chapter. After the uproar ceased, because uproars seemed to follow Paul wherever he went, of course. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples 
And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him, again with the plots, by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Paris from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Darb, and Timothy of Lystra, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Of Paul's companions, seven are named, and I often say, Wouldn't it be nice to be named in the Bible for all eternity as having been faithful? But seven men are named, Sopater from the city of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus, Tachus, Trophimus, and Timothy of Lystra, and Gaius of Darb. When the world tells you that ministry is best done by megachurches, With their mega millions, remember this, as Paul was traveling for Christ, changing the world by planting churches, he was not accompanied by anyone from the mega church in Jerusalem, if it was still a mega church in Jerusalem, or in Perga, or in Sidian Antioch, or in Iconium, but instead dusty little towns of Lystra and Darb. It was there that faithful pastors could instruct one-on-one, nurture men in their faith to prepare them for the task the Lord had for them. Because in the kingdom of God, the church is more than the mathematical equation X number of people equals Y amount of money. It's more like X amount of dedicated Christians equal Y Y amount of souls saved. And I know you might say that you were told there would be no math here. But that's God's equation and it doesn't matter the size of the church or the size of the town. Perhaps the size of the church and the size of the town are an impediment. Because in Paul's world, accompanied to the end of his days by a man from the town of Lystra, town of robbers and the uneducated, Timothy spent the rest of his life doing God's work with Paul throughout the world. Let's close in prayer.